Uh, so we signed off. It was a fun episode to listen to you two as you jousted passionately. Keep up the good work and humor. Next week, can America turn the tables on China stealing our tech by adopting using chopsticks for most of our meals? <laughs> so I, I figured I'd let you, uh, you'd respond to that one, Jeff. Uh, no, please no on the chopsticks. I still haven't figured out how to use them. <laughs> I'm still really bad at them. So no, I don't, I don't want to do that. I don't, I don't want to use chopsticks ever if I can. And we already covered that. So we're just going to kind of skip right on by that. No need to go into more detail on All right, everybody. Welcome back to the Opinion Dominion. We are still alive. Um, and this is going to be a special episode. Uh, this is going to be Jeff's apology tour. Oh, come on now. That's not nice. <laughs> this is no, this, what this is going to be is JT's ambush episode. He's got ammo stored up for months, just waiting. Uh, so. Maybe, maybe not. We'll okay, see. we'll see. Anyway, I, I hope this is entertaining, right? I mean, if it isn't, you know, it's. We'll just leave it on the cutting room floor, but uh, half... No, we'll go ahead and put it out and make people suffer through it. Most of our... I think a lot of our entertaining stuff is just completely happens in the moment, so I think we'll just kind of go with it and see what happens. Yeah. Yeah. We can do that. So. Um, actually, I figure a good place to start would be feedback. Okay. Yeah, that's, um, that's We haven't done that for a while, and I got... Speaking of ambushed, I got ambushed by someone that you know. Oh, um, okay. Who was... Uh, well, I'll just... I'll, I'll explain that when we get to that point. Um, but before we jump to that, since I'm sure people are going to wonder why it's taken a little while for this episode to come out. Yeah. So do you just want to go ahead and just address that and get it out of the way and move on. Yeah. So I've gone through a ton of life changes in the last year, year and a half, something like that moved recently. That kind of up and did well, everything, uh, changed a lot of patterns. I just had to take some time to absorb them. I didn't even have a place to set up and record a podcast for a while, and then I lost some of the equipment in a box that I found recently. It's just taken some time, and I apologize that it took so long. Uh, hopefully we have uh, still got at least one listener left. Mostly it's just uh, life is tumultuous, it especially has been since COVID, and um, we'll just leave it at that. I'm pretty sure we have one, at least one listener, because your dad's going to listen. At least so one. what we need is at oh, least that's, two. that's true. Hi, Dad. Yeah, he's going to come up later. We should get your dad we're, to we're listen. Gonna, he's, your dad's going to come up later in this episode, actually. Oh, oh, um, is yeah, he? Actually, we'll just jump right there right now. So Go for one it. Of the, one of the pieces of feedback that we got. Um, now, let me be clear. I am not 100% sure that this is your, your father. I am, however, like 99% sure that this is your father. <laughs> um, and, well, now I'm like 99.9%. Before, okay, before self, I was 99%. Now I'm 99.9%. Because... He oh. seemed to somehow know that we had not covered all of the feedback that was sent in. Uh-huh. And I had suspected it. He said that to you? Yeah, he said that to me. And I had, huh. I had kind of suspected it was him anyway, because never has anyone so voraciously defended your honor and your statements. <laughs> and also emailed in from a Texas Roadrunner ISP. Yeah, yeah. And like, I know a it's bunch of people him. in Texas... But, you know, everything lines up, and I'm like, I'm pretty sure I, I know who this is. But maybe, maybe it's not. But we'll go ahead and okay. cover it. Okay, well, let's, let's hear it, and we'll establish. So he, he, he actually broke it down into four sections. 
Um, very, okay, so it's a treatise. Oh yeah, like there's section one and then section two. So section one is introduction. Um, <laughs> oh, no. And it's, I too hate the ROE, Religion of Environmentalism's failed experiment euphemistically called HOV lanes in metropolitan areas that has manifestedly wasted behemoth, behemoth, behemothic, that's a weird word, sums These of hard-working taxpayer funds. ROE failed to accomplish the goal of getting cars off the road. ROE further defiled long-established highway safety standards by shrinking existing lane width standards to make room for the new HOV lane, approximately six inches from each lane. The unintended consequences resulted in further atrophied traffic arteries with maddening, wasteful lanes of trifling usage and thus worse traffic conditions than promised. Yet... My dad doesn't talk this way. Yet, rather than admit the glaring failure of HOVs and instead offer better solutions, read non-ROE-driven fantasies, they doubled down and turned them into variable-priced based lanes, a total corruption of the original fantasy. I believe this was described in this episode as Texas Express lanes. So that's, that's section yeah. one. That, that, that's just one section? That's just one section. Oh my. I okay. figured the um, eloquence and verboseness was an attempt to cover up who it may be. Okay, that, that yes. That, that was quite eloquent. It, it, I'm impressed with was. all the big, and the big dollar words Yeah, in there. the Sathars yeah. definitely got work during that email. No <laughs> doubt. So section two is more whining. The stealth okay. morphing of the ill-conceived HOV lanes into Texas Express lanes with its insidious ever-changing toll rates meant somehow something had to measure the need for these lanes and determine when to raise the rates. And not just one step up in rates, but multiple rate steps determined, uh, determined to design to inflict the highest fares when drivers needed them the most. E.g., headed to the airport and a major traffic accident blocking half of the lanes on the main non-toll railway. Naturally, the rates are lowest when the Texas Express lanes are needed least. It makes one question how the tolls can be changed to inf how the tolls can be changed so rapidly to inflict the most pain, and of course communicate to drivers what the current rate is, so they can decide whether or not to stop at the bank for a loan before entering the ex hallowed <laughs> express lane. <laughs> I understand the current toll on the HOV come express lane is clearly posted, allegedly just as soon enough to allow the driver to veto into or away from these money-soaking lanes. That's that's section two. Okay, so I have to disagree. Partially. Yeah, it's, it's a nice gut feeling. It feels like they're gouging when we need it most. But at the same time, it's the same thing. It's a shared resource. And money is one of the worst ways to govern access to a shared, scarce resource. But it's unfortunately one of the most... Everybody's got money. That, no, that doesn't... That's not a fair way to say that. Everybody has access to money. What you choose to spend it on is up to you, ostensibly. Uh, assuming and you have the money to spend, exactly, and it's not already allocated for, you know, eating. Exactly. That's why it's not actually fair, but the thinking is, money is the way we transact business and exchange in this world, and therefore, since it's the universal exchanger, we'll use money to govern access to this scarce resource. So if there's more people using the lanes and it clogging it up, I can see why they would want to crank up the cost but then you're just diverting traffic back onto the main lanes. So I, I'm not trying to defend whatever corporation is in charge of, I think it's NTTA. They make, I don't know how much money on this stuff. I know highways are expensive, but I'm, I'm not trying to defend them. I'm just, I had this realization a couple of years ago and I was listening to a podcast and someone was complaining about paid for streets in London. 
and congestion charges. And I was thinking, well, that's not fair at all, congestion charges. But there's no other equitable way to govern access to a shared resource like that. So as much as I don't like it, and it really does feel like a cash grab, I don't see what are the recourse. So if you had them fixed, just this is always the cost. Actually, I don't think about it. I don't see that that would be a bad thing, you know? And if the text express lane fills up, oh gosh, okay. So now I'm gonna go back on what I just said because I realized you don't want the text express lane to clog, not because you're concerned about traffic, but because you're concerned about the profit stream. So you crank up the cost to make sure that you don't clog the text express lanes. You're always trying to find that pain threshold such that the text express lane is always going. So there's multiple lanes in certain areas. Yikes. Yeah, that's that's really hard to defend. Um, I don't want to agree with the writer, but I just... Yeah, okay, I guess I'm agreeing with him. I'm agreeing with you, proto-dad. Allegedly. Alleged dad. Third, third, third section. Finally, the point of this verbose... The point of this verbose missive. <laughs> so an astute opinion Dominion listener might ask, what is required to accomplish such real-time traffic calculations, adjust tolls to inflict the most pain when the need is the greatest, continuously compute the required changes in tolls as traffic conditions change, and magically collect these tolls wirelessly and on the fly without requiring speeding tickets to slow down? It takes technology. Conclusion, fourth section. HOV lanes monitored visually by camera are becoming express toll lanes, and that requires technology. Therefore, the subject of HOV lanes express lanes qualifies as tech that has failed, and therefore hereby deemed a proper and valid subject for the stated title of this episode, Tech That Has Failed versus Tech That Hasn't. Okay, now, in my response, I would like I to it. say that whoever this person is, allegedly your father, has just lied. Because what he has done is he has created an equivalence between HOV lanes and express lanes and then proven his case on express lanes and thus inferred that they automatically apply to HOV lanes. Problem is, HOV lanes do not meet all the criteria that he has talked about in here. You're not wrong. So, like, I get what he's doing. He's taking something that is different that he can make an argue against, claiming it's the same, and then going, see, that proves that this other thing that's actually different is the same. I give you an A for effort, but I give you a C for implementation of this argument. Hypothetically, Jeff's dad. <laughs> uh, so he signed off. It was a fun episode to listen to you two as you jousted passionately. Keep up the good work and humor. Next week, can America turn the tables on China stealing our tech by adopting using chopsticks for most of our meals? <laughs> so I, I figured I'd let you, uh, you'd respond to that one, Jeff. Uh, no. Please know on chopsticks. I still haven't figured out how to use them. <laughs> I'm still really bad at them. So no, I don't. I don't want to do that. I don't. I don't want to use chopsticks ever if I can. And we already covered that, so we're just gonna kind of skip right on by that. No need okay. to go into more detail. So, so this email came that. from Sako. That that's Sak as in Sake Sako as in S A K O Sako Sako. So, okay. Uh, if you know anyone that right. goes by that Jeff, then you can figure out who it was. Well, I'm gonna ask him. I don't know. He's got an alias I don't know about. He doesn't really have an online presence. Maybe that's maybe that's, that's what he wants of. you to think. Maybe maybe so. He's incognito, like internet man. Yeah. He's spent years and years in the shadows, just never telling me. It's possible. Speaking of nefarious actors, which apparently this is a nefarious actor episode. I don't understand why, but uh, sure. Okay, so moving on, we have another email from Todd. 
Hello, Todd. This was this was a response to our design episode, I believe. Um, he goes, hey, guys, in the latest episode, the discussion was design. So, yeah, it was a design episode. The conclusion drawn at the end were rightly a little confused. In some instances, companies will spend on the intricate details and features. In some instance, a minimal viable product is what the companies was what companies will go with. I just want to throw my two cents in with regards to the example of the storefront versus the auto manufacturer. Auto manufacturers like to push new models every year, so they need some dis- differentiator. Also, to the best of my knowledge, most of the time it is interior heavy because aspects like engines are usually on some longer schedule. For example, I used to have a little Chevy Colorado and all the mechanical aspects that made it a car were comprised of mostly the same parts as four or six other years of manufacturing of the Colorado. Same as the engine model two years before and after at least. So to get customers what the so blah, so to get customers to want the 2022 over the 2021 model of the vehicle, if it isn't the year for revving the engine compartment, they need to use bells and whistles in the cabins, which I think begs for a better question to be asked. Do we really need a new model of the Ford F-150 every year? To me, it would make more sense to have the Ford 2020 F-150 and a few years of production leave it rather untouched since those years the engine compartment is going to be relatively unchanged anyway. Uh, I'll let you answer that before we go Can I interject here? Yeah. I think... What I've concluded on this is, yeah, I agree. There's, there's been very little changes. It's not because the design needs it or the, the users need it. It's because the sales guys need to have something to sell, which I think I alluded to in the, in the episode of the design episode. It's really, really hard to advertise. You got to have something to talk about. You can't just be like, splash your name. Hey, it's an F-150. That doesn't work anymore, right? You got to have something to talk about. What, what is it that makes your F-150 better than the other one? And when you're talking model years, you're competing against last year's model, like you're saying. So you got to have something, period, that you can latch onto that's that's superior than last year's, and also because you control production, you can say, well, we're not selling twenty twenty ones anymore. And what choice do you so, have? So, right, I mm. I hear the argument, I get it, I think it's BS. Okay, and here's why: the Ford Ranger, <laughs> which is actually the F one fifty from twenty years. Well, ago. not just that, but just if, so if you look clear. at the Ford Ranger, the Ford Ranger in its well, not the new new Ranger that just came out, but the one from like the 90s and 2000s. The classic Ford Ranger, yeah. If you look at, I think they changed the body style in 98, I think it was, 97 or 98. Eight, yeah, I think. That body style and pretty much interior and everything was exactly the same up until like 2015. It was the same truck with all the same options, pretty much. You had a four-cylinder to a V6. That, th- those were your two engine choices. Yeah, there were some minor changes over that like 17 year span. But realistically, if you bought a Ranger in 2011, you could actually take parts from a 2000 and put on your car. It was all the same. They didn't change much. The interior stayed mostly the same as well, except for like they made it a darker gray. But it was actually still the same fabs and forms and everything because you could, if you had an older truck, you could go buy the newer dashboard out of a junkyard and put it in your old truck and it would bolt up fine. And all your stuff would then fit into it perfectly. Like, they didn't change the truck because they actually didn't need to. Because the people that wanted a Ranger bought a Ranger because of what it was and what it did. And honestly, I think the same thing would go for the F-150. If they made a good, solid F-150, they wouldn't need to do much to it. Because when you buy a 150, you you want a truck, but you don't want a small truck. But you also aren't buying 
a 250 or a 350 dually because you're towing. You need a middle grade truck. Now, maybe, okay. maybe, yeah, yeah, yeah. maybe that's that. why the F-150 gets so many changes because it's the middle grade truck. It's the flagship product that drives everything else. And people get 250s and 350s, even though they don't need it. We call them mall crawlers around here. They're all over the place in Texas. I mean, there's tons of people that, I don't know why they bought a 250. Do you need a 250 Platinum? You, have you ever towed anything once off of even the bumper, much less the, the tow bar that's somewhere underneath that bumper that you got? There's a lot of them around here. And in fairness, I mean, I drive an F-150, right? I, I use it to haul stuff all the time. This year alone, I've hauled like 30 loads mm -hmm. of stuff. And it's August. So I think what it boils down to is the F-150 is the moneymaker for Ford. And they're, they've got a good train going of people that will upgrade just because it's the next thing. They've got people hooked on to, this is a flagship product. They've got people convinced that it's like uh, you're driving the Mercedes of, of trucks or something, even. And it works, and it's a huge revenue stream for them, and they're not going to change that, and they're not going to jeopardize that. So I guess it boils down to a lot of truck users in Texas are using their trucks, but there's also a lot of them who are using them as status symbols, or I drive a big truck mm -hmm. that's nice, you know? So the thing I disagree with that is... Up until probably the mid to late 2000s, this was not what Ford did with the F-150. They followed the same pattern they kept following with the Ranger, was build a solid truck, very minimal upgrades between total refreshes. And it worked. So they created the scenario where they're now upgrading it every single year. But I don't think that's required for them to sell trucks. No, it's not required, but it sure is profitable. Yeah. And that's a company's goal, mm -hmm. is to bring profit to its owners or shareholders. I think the difference is that there's two different ways to make profit. One is to sell the same thing to somebody five times. Another is to sell it to five people. And it seems to me like Ford is going with the former instead of the latter. They're going to sell five F-150s to somebody who's going to upgrade every year or two years instead of then trying to capture more people to buy an F-150. Because yeah, well, it makes the people money. that want to make, well, they're making the same money anyway. Mm, I don't if think you I buy two trucks or you buy one and I buy one, Ford's making the same money off the truck. The truck's being sold. I don't buy two trucks at one no, time. No, but if you buy two trucks in two, like you buy a truck. If I, if I upgrade every other year, Yeah, so say, say two years, right? okay? Or three years. If you bought a truck. Well, actually, they want both. They want you to buy the truck and me to buy the truck and me to buy the truck again in two years, which I've never Ideally. Do. But my point is, Ford is selling two trucks. Whether or not that's to one person or one truck to two people, it's still two trucks being sold. So their profit is the same regardless. I feel like that's a false equivalence. How? And I'm struggling to articulate why. We're not talking about like... dealerships. We're talking about manufacturers. Yeah, I, I know. Manufacturers. At the manufacturing level, Ford wants to sell as many F-150s as it possibly mm -hmm. can. And... It wants to find gullible buyers that are willing to buy into the belief that you've got to have the new thing. Right. Period. End of story. Understood. So if I'm coming from that direction, it doesn't matter. Like you're saying, we just want to sell more trucks. Yeah. If we sell more trucks to the same exact people every year, so much better. We have a relationship. It's easier to sell to someone you already have a relationship with. Right. Frankly. But I, I understand that. 90% of the work is already done. So the, co uh, the cost of getting this sale for two distinct people is much higher than getting two sales to one person. See, I don't, so it I saves don't think, them a lot of money and effort. I don't think that is. 
I get, and again, I, I get letters all the time from my Ford dealership asking to buy my truck back and offering to sell me another one at some ridiculous markup. Okay, that's because frankly. the used truck market is insane. Yeah. But I, I got that some... Well, I didn't get it on my old truck. But it seems because it, the, the amount of profit they're going to make on a used... The dealership, the amount of profit the dealership will make on a used truck is more than what the dealership will make on a new truck. Yeah, yeah. It's, that's always true. That's why the dealerships want The dealership wants the used vehicles. That's where they make their money. Right. More than the new... Because new vehicle sales, they make their sliver. Yeah. It's the used sales where they're really key. Yeah. There's a... Which there's is why a, also they're... All, when, they, when you negotiate, they will try very hard to minimize the amount that goes into the resale of whatever you're trading in. Mm -hmm. They want to minimize that because then they can maximize their profits. They don't have to share that back to corporate. Right. So they'll, they'll give you every other incentive under the sun to try and make that, re, you know, turn in number small. Mm -hmm. That's been inflated for like the last two years. And so I think that's gotten probably even worse. Yeah. But, but on the truck front to, to kind of pull back a little bit, like with the Ranger. Oh, you don't want to keep going on tangents. Huh? Well, this is still a tangent. It's just a tangent on the truck. Yeah. Okay. With the with the Ranger, you know, they didn't need to do many updates to it because the truck was an amazing truck. It was extraordinarily reliable. They did their job well. And because of that, and because they didn't make many changes, their manufacturing costs for it were dirt. You're not wrong. On the other end of the spectrum, once you get up into the 350s and 450s, those don't change much either, except for your, your vanity additions. Like the other day, I saw a Platinum 350 and just giggled myself silly. Yeah. Like, Platinum you, 250s you and 350s. You bought a 350 uh. and then you got the Platinum Edition? Like, what? Why? Other than status. But. No, okay. I, no, I, I see it. I see it. I don't see. If you're driving long distances, you want to be comfortable in your vehicle. And if they offer a more comfortable trim line and you're driving, you're, you're hauling your trailer all over Texas or all over whatever. Yeah, if you're hauling it, your. Wouldn't you rather be more comfortable? No, well, no, because if you're hauling a trailer all over Texas, you're going to get the King Ranch with a dually. That's a 350. That, yeah, I the, saw it. The 350 is a dually. I said I saw a Platinum 350. So Platinum and King Ranch are almost the same thing, is my understanding. They're. The, the King Ranch is more flare, and the Platinum is less direct flare, more tech, maybe. But they're both like, here, we're going to throw almost everything we've got into a single vehicle. Here's every, every system we can put into one vehicle that you make you the most comfortable, the most tech, the most this, the most that. You know, like there's no, there's no room on the dash for any more buttons because every, every square inch of the dash is occupied with something. Right. You know, that kind of thing. My point is, if you're towing, and you're going to be towing a lot, and you're going to be towing long distance, you're going to opt for the dually over not if you're doing long distance yeah. heavy towing. So I have to guess people were asking for, can I get an F-350 Platinum? Because I want to be comfortable and I want all these features, but I need to be towing. But I don't actually 20, need 20,000 pounds. See, I, I think it's the opposite. I don't think people are really going to be towing with it. Personally, Probably I think it's the, no, it's the status. I think symbol. it's the I need to show that I'm better than the 250 Platinum owners. <laughs> Probably right. I, mean, I can't universally say that, but there's an awful lot of that that goes on around here. I mean, around here, Platinum Texas. is kind of laughed at. Yeah? Yeah. Why, why is that? Because at least where I live in Maryland, and I see the same in Virginia and Pennsylvania, you know, lots of people have trucks because they want to use a truck. But, you know, you do get a lot of the status symbol people, and they usually go for, like, the Platinums, but they're not actually ever using their truck as a truck. And yeah. around here, you know, if someone is going to be doing towing, they're going to go for something like, you know, a King Ranch or, or something else. Because they're actually using it as utility, not so much as a, this oh, is I my nice truck. So when they see right. somebody with the, with the nice Platinum, they see it as, oh, 
you wanted a nice truck to drive, not, oh, you're actually using your truck as a truck. I, I understand now better what you're okay. saying. You're saying the King Ranch was the, I have things to do, yeah. but I want to do so comfortably. Right. Whereas Platinum is the look at me ostentatious display. Yeah. That's the way it seems okay, to be makes, viewed around, more around where I live with trucks and with truck people and all that. The King Ranch comes with, uh, well, for as long as I've known. When you get to King Ranch, you're getting, one of the things you're getting is this really nice supple leather inside, very comfortable. Oh, yeah, they're very, very nice very, trucks. Yeah, like very nice trucks, very, but very specifically King Ranch denominator, just not the right word. But you can't miss that it, it's King Ranch, because it's literally stitched into every seat. <laughs> yeah. Right? And that, placard, and that placard on the back yeah. is pretty big, too. I mean, it's not as yeah, big it's as really hard it's not to as miss. big as the entire tailgate platinum thing that they did, right. which is yeah. like the we want ev everyone on the highway to know that I'm driving a platinum. That was that was brilliant. I, I, I hate it, but it was brilliant because it shows to everybody. Look what I've got. Yeah. And the kind of people that are going to buy a platinum. That's, that's what they're what going they for. Right. Right. Exactly. Look at me. I mean, not everybody, but, you know. Okay, so to continue Todd's email, he then... Popping, popping the stack. He then yeah. goes to, to the storefront. Retail stores are known to have razor-thin margins, and I assume there isn't as much breathing room for manufacturing vehicles or making phones, especially since auto manufacturers are no longer just auto manufacturers. I did a career fair for software engineering positions at GM, and I guess their financial side is actually the big moneymaker. Not hmm, so much really? making the vehicle... Oh, oh, so. I guess their financial side is the big moneymaker, not so much making the vehicle. At least that is what the recruiter said. The impact of spending the extra money for a storefront could have larger effect than changing knobs for AC as far as the bottom line goes. So yeah, I think it's the, uh, the loans that they get for the trucks that are actually probably more of a long-term... If you look at it long-term, the loans are actually where the majority of the money comes from, the interest on the loans, than necessarily the, um, the actual profit they're making on the truck. Or so I've heard. I don't know. That surprises me. I mean, I, I, I'm not disputing it. It seems reasonable. So the, at that point, the vehicles are a means to get the interest mm -hmm. effectively. You spend billions upon billions of dollars developing entire lineages of cars and fighting with environmental restraints and, and people that hate your company and competition from overseas to get interest. That seems, that seems like the person who was recruiting was from the financial world and wanted to inflate the importance of the financial portion of the company because... I don't know. I, I can't really dispute it, but at the same time, it doesn't, it doesn't strike me. It rubs me wrong. Maybe it's a good way to put it. It feels like it's incomplete. Like, Well, knowing how dirty the financial world is, there's also the possibility that yeah. GM is getting those loans and then selling the loan value to another company and making profit off of that. Because you know how, how twisted and dirty all that stuff gets. So... There yeah, could be some other the there could be some other thing on the back end that we're not thinking of because we're just looking at the face the you know surface level yeah. of face value very easily. It's just, it's just that statement those series of statements. My initial thinking was okay, that guy's just trying to inflate his own importance, and I, I've witnessed that happen. That happens, you know. I was like, I know what the company does, but you know, DevOps is really the important part of the company. I, mean, I see that a lot too. Companies live and die on their DevOps. While that's probably true, that doesn't make DevOps the most important section of your company. Yeah, tell that to the DevOps people, though. Yeah, well, you know those people. Yeah. Can't talk, you can't talk to them. You can't. Right. Just going to let that hang and move on? Yeah, I am. I am. I'm just going to let that hang out there. Okay. Well, that's fine. I'm sure you're, what you're doing is fishing for more listener feedback. Ah, uh, maybe. Maybe. Or maybe I'm just <laughs> that, trying to punch that, you, you when I can. You just put chum in... You put chum in the water and let it ride. Tell me. 
But that's not fishing. Hate the player, not the game. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Actually, I should say hate the game, not the player. You know what I mean. Anyway, on the storefront thing, I, yeah, yeah, I hear yeah. I hear what you're saying, Todd. I still think, though, because the margins are so small for stores, anything you can do to distinguish yourself to get more customers in is going to be beneficial. I agree. And yes, if you're if you're hiring one artisan to craft your storefront, then yes, that's that's going to be expensive. But you know, again, if we look historically, you know, these things were made in individual pieces so that you could basically design what articulate front end you wanted and just have those individual wood pieces put together. It wasn't like one tree was carved into one whole corner of the building. So, I think with scale, I don't think it would be as expensive as people would think. I guess is what I would say. I guess I agree. But uh, again, just like the, the previous statement, it doesn't sit well with me. Because I'm thinking, so back when storefronts were being made, very elegant, and a lot of these are from uh, 100 years ago, 80 years ago, like different, different eras we talked about, right? Mm -hmm. You weren't competing globally, you were competing locally. So I guess if you knew you were going to have a kind of a captive revenue stream, it would make sense for you to be like, well, okay, we can spend the money on making this storefront look nice. I just don't think you could do that anymore. Because you're never not competing globally anymore. We're all so connected now. You are competing against every other person in the world that is selling that widget. So I think even if you're like, I believe we were talking about manufacturing and making, making these, I guess, storefront widgets. I don't want to reuse that mm -hmm. term, but the, the storefront decals, whatever's the things go on the front, we could, we could make them manufacturable and make it a little bit easier and you know, pick from a catalog kind of thing. I still think people wouldn't do it. Yeah. And that sucks. That's what I'm saying. I, it really does. Yeah. I mean, it's just the cost of starting a business is the, the barrier to entry is very low, but the, what it takes to have success has gotten higher, I think, because how much you're competing against. But that's just, that's progress for you. Nothing we can do about it, frankly. And the progress from us being very connected has brought so many other benefits that I think that that's, that's a fine cost that we have to pay, frankly. Not that I, I don't like competing with the whole world for everything, but that's, I don't, the world doesn't care what I like. So we had two uh, emails in um, from, let's see, Mark and Steve, and they sent links. So I will put those in the show notes. Um, they are also on the, the architectural front thing. Uh, one is an article from Sweden from 2018, and one is a thing from Toyota about them building a prototype city of the future. Um, which, ironically enough, this came up this, well, this right. didn't come up, but I posted in our Telegram channel about the Saudi thing for that. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, that, that was a couple weeks ago. Yeah, I think. but the, uh, the Toyota thing looked interesting. I still think it's not going to be realistic. But, you know, it's from Japan, so it's an interesting take. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's heavily pushing the, uh, the Jidaka and Kaizen aspects, which, uh, those two words. Um, so I really like... I thought it was two K words, the manufacturing, two K words. Huh? What's, what's the GDK? What's, what's that one? I'm not familiar with that one. Uh, well, Kaizen is the continuative process of improvement thing. Right. Um, and Jidoka is basically the when you have... The way I've heard it explained, and like, I'll do it from auto manufacturing, is that one person can control multiple things. So you don't need multiple people controlling multiple things. You're able to 
get them to work together in such that one person is able to do multiple things or that one thing is able to interact with multiple things and handle their processes and so on and so forth. Okay. They're, they're actually two really good, you know, design and engineering philosophies. Uh, and Japan actually knows how to do them. Um, I get so, I don't even want to say irrationally angry because I think it's perfectly rational when people in the U S like to use these terms to define their engineering practices and then don't follow any of the principles. It's like, Oh right. yeah. Oh, you mean, you mean like agile development? Mm, yeah. You know, like another, good Oh, one. oh we're, we're Kaizen. We, we do Kaizen. Be like, no, you don't. You do absolutely no, you none would... of the principles of Kaizen. You're just throwing it out there because yes, we make improvements over time. Like that's, that's like the cherry on top of Kaizen. There's a whole lot of other stuff that goes into why that happens. And they just completely ignore that. Well, that's not expedient. And it's a buzzword and we want the buzzword. All right. We want the cachet from having the buzzword in our, we've demonstrated we have Kaizen. No, you, you know, you haven't demonstrated that. No, but uh, sure. But you know, I mean, it takes too much effort to go and check up on people. It takes too much effort to go. Does well, they, do they actually have Kaizen? Although it'd be very evident if you're looking at the manufacturing processes and the quality that's coming out of their, their factories and be like, uh, a Kaizen process would not have these issues that I'm observing. But you have to go observe them. A friend of mine works for Volkswagen, and uh, at some point, he was over it doing something with in Japan, and he did a thing. He did a tour of whatever of Toyota's plants or whatever. And whoever was giving him the tour and going through stuff, they were they were explaining stuff. And one of the things, one of the aspects of Kaizen that they do is literally anybody in the factory can stop the entire factory. Mm, I like that. So, like, if there is a guy who's working on a certain part, he's doing some. Let's say he's I don't know doing bolting the subframe up, let's just say that. And he sees a problem with the subframes that are coming through or whatever. He can stop the entire plant. Not like he stops his stuff. No, like the entire effing plant stops. And then people come over and he points out, okay, this is this, da, da, da. And then they do a quick huddle, figure out, is this actually a problem? If, if it is, the, the stuff that's already down the line doesn't continue. It stops. And all that stuff gets put into another area and held until they fix the problem. They address the problem 100%. And then they don't continue the line again until that problem is resolved. And some people will say, well, then what does the rest of the plant do? Like, that's a lot of downtime. You could have stuff going on. Well, during that... There's always things to do in a plant. Well, during that downtime, the people in the other areas, their job during that downtime period is to analyze what their job is and to come up with, are there any ways this can be improved? Are there any things where this maybe isn't as good as it should be? And basically take notes to that so they can then pass that on to their managers or their supervisors. So their supervisors can then, when they have time, analyze all the feedback they got. So during that period, everybody is trying to figure out how to improve their own little part of the process, which would then improve the greater process. Well, I love that. I really, I really adore that. And again, that. you know, you've got one guy on the line who has the ability to go, nope, there's a problem. We need to address this. And then, you know, the managers and the executives get involved. Well, not like company executives, but like plant executives get involved. Of, okay, right. what is the problem? How bad is it? And then we deal with it. And like the cars that were further down the line, when the issue gets fixed, those cars don't go out the door and then, oh, we'll just get it in a warranty return later if there's a problem. No, they get diverted back to get the problem corrected before they actually go out. And it's like, right. I, I'm a door all You that. don't get that in software engineering. No. You have somebody down the line no. that's like, hey, I found a problem. And it's like, shut up. We don't want to know about it. It's fine. We'll wait until we get a bug ticket about it. Like, no, no, no. But this is actually a big problem. No, 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 no. You don't, you don't know what you're doing. Focus on your stuff. You're not, you're not, you don't do the engineering for Ho this. Hopefully, hopefully you can put the bug ticket in. 
Like, okay, here's your ticket, go. But uh, yeah, but then you know, backlog. There's always the hubris, yeah, backlog and grooming, or, and and uh, we'll, we're never gonna get to you your know, ticket. or the situation when you're explicitly told you're not allowed to make a ticket about that. Oh, I haven't encountered that, thankfully. Yeah, that's a fun one. Yeah, no, I, I can't. I would not. I would not respond to that very well. Yeah, I, I, I didn't respond well either. But you know, it's one of the things of when you're given a direct, explicit, you are not to file a ticket about this. Like, um, uh-huh. well, either you do it. At which point you're toast because you were just it's a resume generating told, event. Exactly. Yep. Resume gen- you were just told to your face no. Or you just accept the fact that, oh, okay, well, this is this exists, and when this blows up, I'm gonna make sure I have that email ready to go. Exactly. Here you go. Yeah. You could have fixed it. You gotta this. have something written. Yeah. Yep. So I'm thinking back to this factory and I'm thinking. I can't imagine a situation in which you'd actually have time to stop and evaluate your process. It's just been so long since that's been possible. There's always been too many things to do, always been snowed under. I can't, our process would be so much better. Mm -hmm. But the only way that works is if the amount of work coming in is limited. And I haven't felt that or seen that. So I don't think it's just the amount of work coming in that's limited. I also think it's management having the ball to say no we're making this time because this time is going to pay dividends down the road yeah and if we do this now and we spend the time now it's better for it's an investment into the company's profitability it is but it is nobody cares about that anymore because it's all like this quarter returns we need to show this growth or whatever for this quarter so it doesn't matter if it's going to cost us more in the long run i'm planning on leaving this company in three quarters anyway and getting a different job somewhere else because I can show that I had three straight quarters of growth. F the company once right. I'm gone, I don't care. Like, that problem exists. Yeah, so that, that problem exists, and that culture exists, and that culture is completely contradictory to the culture of improving what's around you that you're talking about, the, the, the Kaizen approach. And I, I don't know how Kaizen can ever really have success in the United States, even if you've got a company that's, like, fanatically... Um, adhering to these principles and training all their people that way the rest of the united states does not really hold to that they're much different i think it has to be no not authoritative culture but it's, it's something about the the japanese culture that they like the germans also as, as a people i feel like the germans are, are always seeking a, a more efficient way to do things and japan is very similar I don't get the sense that americans are wanting that they're more focused on what's going to get us more profit right now as opposed to Profit will come. Let's fix what we have now and make a better process. So I, I don't, I mean, this is cynical of me to think that, but I don't, I don't see examples of Kaizen working in the United States, unless it's like Toyota, Toyota bringing their, their plants over here and building plants that are 80% robots and the, the remaining 20% of employees, they can train and control and actually convert the environment that they want. But that's only because they're able to reduce the headcount, right? The contagion of the American lazy way. They probably actually ship over some of their own employees, too, to be in, in the positions of importance, the plant managers and, and the plant executives well, and what, such. That's what BMW does. Right. Like, we're hiring Americans to do the line work, but right. we're having Germans in charge of the process and the plant. Because that's the only way that things are actually going to get done the way we want them to be. Yeah. Was there... We kind of got off on, on several yeah, tangents there. Did we finish that feedback? reminds me of something i wanted to talk about in an episode and now i can't find my notes on it 
But I wanted to notes diving. Yeah, I wanted to bring it up just to see if you thought it would be interesting. Okay. Um, and if not, we can always cut yeah, it. Yeah, or we can leave it in because you're going to say something useful here. And we hope. Keep, and keep we expect. People, and keep people interested while I'm looking. Oh, right. This is the part where I fill in yeah, airtime. Yeah, this is that part. Let me. Oh, um, I'm totally prepared for this this role. Yes. So. Um, My mind has just blanked. This is how good I am at this. Come on, Jeff. Don't let me down. Admittedly, Don't let me down. I'm out of practice. I'm out of practice. What can I say? You know? I'm looking around my room now and, and just looking at things. We're going to have to clean this up later. It's, okay, let me, let me ask this question while you're we're looking okay. for notes. So it's kind of somewhat rhetorical. Uh, I'm asking the question to listeners, too. Um, what would it take to change... The American ideal of profit into the Toyota, I'm sorry, the, the Japan or Germany ideal of production quality. How many things would have to change? It seems like there's so many that it's an insurmountable mountain. And I, I honestly feel like part of it is because we have such an abundance here that we don't ever need to focus on efficiency. I mean, we want to be efficient, and efficiency helps you beat your competitors, but efficiency and process and quality for quality's sake is not as important when we have an abundance of resources, right? So it seems like what would, we would have to take Americans and put them into a society or an environment in which they don't have abundant resources for that, those changes to take place, and that's not going to happen. So I, I don't see America ever trending in the direction that Germany or Japan or pick others. I'm just, I've identified those two nations. And not to say that the entire nation is one unit all working towards efficiency. Just in general, the people group seems to be very focused on that. I don't think we will ever be able to do anything like that because of, why? You know, it's cheaper for us. If profit is first, it's cheaper for us to throw the thing away because we have more resources, right? If you have a limited amount of resources, like here's a good example. The kind of wood that guitars have been made out of have been, has been evolving over the last 10, 20 years because as guitars have gotten more and more popular, then these forests of a particular type of redwood or a particular type of rosewood or something, they've been completely deforested. And look, Brazil doesn't want anybody else, they, they don't want people coming and harvesting redwood trees or not uh, uh, rosewood trees. So you can't really make, can't effectively make all your guitars using rosewood fretboards anymore because you just can't get the resources. And so it seems like, well, we're coming up with something else. I'm seeing guitars coming up with different materials. There will always be a demand for the original quality. We now have to change our manufacturing because this other material is not, doesn't work the same way. And the, it's only because the scarcity of that resource that's forcing us to adapt our build styles of guitars. And I, I, that's kind of a poor analogy, but that's the first thing that, that came to mind. It was something that's actually legitimately scarce we can't get anymore. Maybe a better one would be like uh, rare earth materials, which are now showing up in so many things, and our access to them is generally from countries that we're frigid with. We'll just put it that way. So we have to come up with different ways to achieve the same thing without using as many of those rare earths or ones that we can get here in the United States. 
maybe. And that forces us to change because of resource constraints. But if we don't have a resource constraint, why change? Did you find the thing uh, you were looking for? Yes and no. I found three things that I had notes on, and I don't think either of these are the ones I was looking for. So, Well, perhaps we should... Um, maybe it ends up in a different episode. Yeah, maybe. Uh, anyway. There's a lot more to explore here. Yeah. Um, let's see, we had uh, a couple more responses. Um, we had one from Tony on the G designers episode, and he so eloquently wrote, JT is an idiot. Thank you, Tony. Um, <laughs> you speak truth, your, Tony. Uh, Keep on speaking your truth. Your eloquence and the arguments that you crafted in your email um, uh, have really won me over and really shown me that, uh, <laughs> that your proposition might have merit. I just, I don't, I don't know what to do with that one. So, so that's so really it funny. He didn't, he didn't, it was self-evident. So he didn't need I an guess, argument. I guess. Right. I guess that, that he's so confident in his thesis. Yeah. And then uh, Timothy wrote in and he said, I'm telling you, man, IBM and HP can engineer some amazing shit when they want to, which I agree with. I agree with too. Yeah. yeah. I think this comes down to when do they want exactly, to, though? when they want to do something, they can yeah. do something amazing. But a lot of the times, I think companies are just more than willing to do crap because, well, that's easier. So we've been talking a lot about car manufacturing. The, I do love, I don't see this happening as much, but it used to be that they would send their design firms off to build exotic cars or some, take the, you know, BMW M3 and then make it super awesome mm -hmm. or something or whatever. So like all these builds that they'll never actually make this into a real car, but it certainly is cool what they're doing. So I do, there's some exceptionalism there, but I don't see that as much anymore. Maybe it's because I'm not as plugged in. Maybe I'm just more cynical. So they still do that at the I Detroit don't... shows, but to be honest, the stuff really isn't that innovative anymore. Yeah. Like, it's just, it's flashier, and they're taking stuff and like, oh, look, we're going to integrate this new touch panel into the car. And it's like, yeah, who cares? Touch panels are not anything new or fancy or creative. You just decided to put a touch panel on the, the door instead of in the dash like that's that's not revolutionary that sounds like you're thinking of a specific I, no, I, well, example i don't know what car it was but touch panel on the door yeah oh, let me think about that that could be that could be interesting but it's not very like it doesn't really shake my world either like okay i have a panel on my door to do something to replace the locks and windows stuff that's a panel instead yeah that's like that's what i'm saying like this is not revolutionary if you look at the the stuff that no, came out like not. in the 70s and 80s like they were going with cr like, crazy balls ideas Yes, they were. Even in the 2000s, especially like in the early 2000s, I, I sometimes go back and watch old Top Gear stuff. And I'm fascinated by this like 2001 through 2004 era transition where the National Highway Safety Transport Authority crash test ratings came out and all these cars changed overnight. Yeah. And at the same time, we were doing modeling of the physics of what was going on inside of an engine cylinder and figuring out the best ways to get the most power out of it. And, and there's just rapid evolution all of a sudden. And I think now you can't really change a lot of those. Like we, we've established this is the most efficient way to make an engine that has four cylinders of this size. And we stick a turbocharger on it, make these compromises, and we've done about as good as we can with that, right? We've, we're approaching the end of what we can do here. See, now, there's always new I kind, I kind of disagree. I think we've just found a local minimum. And people okay. have gotten so locked into this is the way it has to be done that not as many people are willing to try a little bit odder things. I mean, there are companies out there that are doing really interesting engine design. There's a company called Duke. I think it's 
an American Australian company. Um, their engine is actually really, really interesting, really compact, really efficient. It's a five cylinder rotary engine that still uses pistons. It's like, it's a really weird concept. Axial yeah. engine. The tiny and five it's, cylinder, it's, 1000 CC. It's basically perfectly balanced. Anyway, the point is, like, there are still things that are happening. I just don't see, at least in the auto world, them really pushing the boundaries. You still get at, like, the Detroit shows, there'll be a handful of companies that'll do something kind of crazy. But honestly, right. it's more just like flash and bang and, like, the exterior than anything else. So it's like the Prowler which was cool and revolutionary, and they actually made it into a real model. But I remember when that landed, people were like, whoa, this is, this is, we're borrowing. Isn't that the one that had the wheels that were offset, like an F1, like it was only contested? Well, it was an open wheel design. Open wheel, that's the word I'm looking for, thank you. Yeah, well, phrase. That's the phrase I was looking for. You know, that kind of stuff. I, I don't get a sense that that's happening as much. And I also, I, I stopped paying attention, frankly, you know, because if I'm looking at what new car stuff is coming out, then all that's going to do is result in me like, oh, maybe I need a car. No, I don't. I have a vehicle that gets me from A to B quite well um, and allows me to haul stuff with it, too. I don't need to be wanting another car, so I just don't look at that stuff. I'm not, it's not my, I'm not an enthusiast for it. I mean, I, I probably used to be, but I'm not anymore. It's cheaper this way. I can't afford to be an enthusiast. We'll put it that way, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So let's see. We got a, an email in from Sierra, and it said, uh, I noticed the audio sounds better the last few episodes. Keep up the good work. Yeah. Excellent. So glad to hear that. I would like to know oh, what we did hopefully differently. Hopefully in this interim, I haven't screwed things up, so now they don't sound as good. Well, well I guess we'll see. Uh, send in another email. Sierra, if let us again. know if... <laughs> yeah, exactly. If the, if the quality has declined, let us know, please. Uh, then we got an email from Christopher. Um, I didn't want to believe that the feds could be so dirty like Claire was alluding to in her episode, but wow, when the Project Veritas stuff blew up where they were leaking info yeah. about the New York Times and their investigation and later documents came out that they were... that the New York Times was deceiving the court system and hiding information from the federal judge. That was the New York Times and the FBI doing that, I believe. He said, you know, I've never been a fan of them, but he says the, uh, the FBI should not allow to be allowed to break the law. Uh, yeah, I, I kind of would agree with that. Yeah, I, I agree with that too. They're supposed to enforce it, not break it. Yeah. And they can't break it to enforce it. Right. Um, and then That's we have easy. an email from Mark. Uh, and this is in relation to your uh, mental effort episode. Oh, yeah. That's going back a little ways. That is going back a little ways. Um, and he said, don't let JT fool you. From what I heard at Linux Fest Northwest a while ago, he's got a fucked up brain. <laughs> so, <laughs> Can attest. I, I think this is probably, if this is the mark, I think it is. I think this is in reference to me talking uh, with some people at Linux Fest Northwest about uh, synesthesia and aphantasia. Oh, okay. But that's, if you're curious about those, look them up. Uh, Jeff, you and I have talked about those in the past. We, we have, yeah. We've, we've talked it. Yeah. Um, and then the last email we got in is from Theo. And it's a question for you, Jeff. Okay. Hit me, and Theo. It's, it's a question from Theo and then something later from me to, as a cherry on top. Okay. But why does Jeff hate SMB so much? We don't have enough time in this episode for that. Well, let's give us the quick bullet point summary. And then we'll, we'll dedicate a whole episode to why Jeff hates SMB. God, how do I even... Oh. Okay, let's take it into a different domain, and maybe that'll help me explain. Let's imagine you're building a house, and you're building a house in such a way 
that it has absolutely no door locks because you want to make sure people can come and go as they want. So why bother with door locks? In fact, why bother with doors, right? We'll just have openings in the house. And uh, when we're building this, why bother, you know, putting down a slab or a pier? And so they just start building frame on the uneven ground. No big deal. We'll just kind of build it up. We can fix it later, right? We can just improve this later. No, once you've built this frame, you got to have a foundation underneath the frame for the frame to be stable. But if you don't bother with the foundation, then the frame will never be stable. And no amount of improvement you can do to the frame or the house or the drywall or whatever it is you put in there will ever make the house better because the foundation's not solid. That's SMB. That never had a solid foundation ever. Period. End of story. No one thought about security. And for some reason, we are still building on this house and still using it like it's okay. And it's not. It's never been okay. Period. It just, it was never okay. Even back in the late 90s, early 2000s, when it was getting very big, network neighborhood and all that stuff in, in Windows World, it was not appropriate then. We just weren't as concerned about security back then. And most protocols that evolved in that era have since evolved again to incorporate security in some fashion. Some of them hang on without, like SNMP took a long time before people started embracing security. Like, why would we care about our monitoring being observed? But uh, SMB, I don't know what, how it hung on as long as it did, being as terrible as it was. And I think partly my, my disgust over SMB is actually my disgust over Microsoft not laying down the law to the clients and saying, look, guys, SMB is a terrible protocol and required so many compromises, and we have to leave these compromises in the modern kernel to support it. We can't, we won't do this anymore. I'm pretty sure SMB3, it breaks compatibility with SMB1. Yes, it must. In fact, I believe they've obsoleted SMB1 and Oh, yeah, it's been, it's been obsoleted for a while, though people still use it. But that's, I wouldn't blame that on SMB, more on that's a sysadmin thing of you just refusing to actually use SMB3 and updating your own infrastructure because apparently AD and uh, running LDAP is hard and running Kerberos is apparently too difficult for these sysadmins to figure out. Well, okay. SMB was just so foolproof the early days of it. Like it was just, it wasn't, it wasn't foolproof. I remember lots of times when you'd put two computers on a network and they wouldn't see each other. How many times did that happen over and over and over again? Because SMB was not foolproof, but it was full resistant because it threw out, threw out all the notions of security and, and just what was the most useful for the user, right? What was the most, what, what, what is the best experience for them? Which in general I approve of, but if it comes at the cost of making yourself completely vulnerable for everything, then I don't approve of that, right? Find the balance. Well, again, that's, that's SMB1, and yeah. I think SMB3 is, is an entire beast. Nope. Uh, yeah. Up until five years ago, there was still support for SMB1 in the Windows kernel and Windows subsystems. I don't know if you know that. Yeah, I believe it. It, it's, it. Yeah, I think it was like 2017 when they finally, they published bulletins for like 10 years and they never actually pulled the trigger on it because they must have had some big clients saying, no, we're still using SMB1. You can't Yeah, probably the U.S. It. government. And by big, I'm going to, I was going to say the U.S. government would be my guess. You know, like I remember they, they, there was some big splash a long time ago about naval ships and they were all running Windows 95. I mean, I think this has come up on the show before. So I'm going to guess that it was like some big client like that, and they, they could not because they, they had billion-dollar contracts or something that would prevent them from doing so. I, I, that'd be my guess, but still. So that's succinctly put why I hate SMB. There's a lot more to unpack there, and uh, I don't think it's enough for a full episode, but I would, I would need to go back and, and dive back into the SMB code and the, the protocol again and refresh myself to be able to give you a full diagnosis of why it sucks so bad. But it's pretty terrible. It's like... 
if you're evaluating all these different decisions on how you would do this algorithm, at every step, they're making the wrong decision. That kind of terrible, right? And it's just one of those, there's no recovering from it. There's no, there's no fixing it. It was, it was just that bad. So that's my five-minute rant on okay. SMB. So I'm going to send you a link, Jeff, and I want you to read the About section of this and then tell me your thoughts, okay? okay? All right. The about section. Where is it? It's about? over on the scrolling. scrolling. No, it should be up at the top over on the right hand side. Oh, about. Oh God. Oh no. What, Jeff? What 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 is it? What? What what, what is it, Jeff? Why? The the only thing that's good about this page is, is this repository has been archived by the owner and is now read only. Thank God. Adobe did this? Yes, this is why Adobe is evil. What the hell? All right, so so he sent me a link to a project on GitHub by Adobe. It's called Node SMB Server. Some genius decided to take the SMB protocol and implement it in JavaScript. A 100% JavaScript implementation of the SMB file... I can't even finish that sentence. That's... Well, God, that's, that's distasteful. The SMB file sharing protocol. Oh, my God. Why? Why does this exist? 400 commits, so it wasn't like a small-time joke. It was like this just ran for a while. Look at the date. Yeah, so they updated. The last commit was uh, June 22, 2021, and that was an update to the README. Looks like it actually had activity through roughly 2019, 2020. How long did this project go on for? God. This is terrible. This is wh why. Why? Oh my. Um, so I need to go take a shower now, like immediately. This, this is, this is, this is proof, vile. undeniable proof that Adobe is an evil company. Yeah, no, this is, this is vile. So I will put I that, just, that link that. in the, uh, in the show notes. Yuck. God. I will probably actually drop it in the Telegram channel just to see what comments people, people say. Right. <laughs> you can do that before the episode. Uh, probably. I'm just going to drop it on them so they don't okay. know what it is. <laughs> <laughs> all right well when you see this link and then you hear the episode later you'll be like yeah, that's oh, where that came from that's what that yeah, so, was so we yeah. can't say anything about it jeff i'm just gonna drop the link and silence and just we're gonna okay. experiment and see what's said that i will do my best to not respond and not vomit so okay i, I think my that part uh for the social that'll experiment. wrap up this this episode so we're we're clear to feedback that's excellent so i'm i'm Happy that we're back oh, doing this again. Wait, I'm sorry it took up. so long. Oh, we yep, have one we more? do have one more. Uh, is this a surprise? No, no, this agentry? is. You like to spring things on me. Okay. No, I, I, I thought maybe we covered this, but it doesn't look a lot like we did. So this is actually going way back. This is, uh, uh, it's on the Herbert episode. Ooh. And see, Will wrote in, I just want to write in and say that I knew a Herbert as well. He sounds a lot like Jeff's. I did not work closely with him, so I don't have a lot of detailed stories. He was working as a developer researcher in a decent science computing lab setting, and Herbert became the main sysadmin guy. The administrative office computers had Windows, and the lab computers had Linux. I think Herbert got his job for the Windows background, but maybe I'm giving him too much credit. To get anything done on the Linux side, you had to sit him down at the keyboard and talk him through the steps. Other than things that were mostly stagnant, the lab, the lab was located in a different part of the building from the office computers. 
I just assumed Herbert always was always up in the office, but he was hard to get a hold of. He just didn't respond to IMs very quickly. When he would appear in person, he usually had an agitated voice and would be shifting around physically, acting really anxious, like he was in a big hurry. He was born and raised in America and was a big talker when talking about things other than work. He would always take lunch with other stakeholders in the IT decision-making process. He had a lighthearted, affable demeanor. He made a lot of jokes, but I found his sense of humor weak. I became friendly with a junior sysadmin who was an immigrant whom we will call Kenny. He spoke decent English but had a thick accent, so there was some major language barrier in getting requests across at times. But he would work hard and be responsive to requests for improvement to the Linux configuration. He would vent to me about how frustrated he was that Herbert would sit around and not get anything done. And then in the weekly IT meetings, he would out-talk Kenny, redirecting things that uh, he should have done as though Kenny should have done them. Suggesting alternate solutions to things Kennedy already started doing a different way after not giving input before he started. One incident I can remember is that he blocked Kenny from expanding the number of servers we had so he could set up things like NextCloud because the server closet could handle the heat because the server closet, I'm assuming, couldn't handle the heat load. Eventually, Kenny worked with a contractor to install vents and a fan in the server closet, door, and wall. This dynamic lasted a few years, but eventually Herbert messed up enough things for the administrative staff um, that he didn't have a place to hide. And Kenny had built up his personal brand as a reliable problem solver. So, yeah, these, these people exist. That's, that's yeah, a Herbert. they exist everywhere, yeah. unfortunately. They do. They do. Well, I hope that um, you're able to work around your Herbert, frankly. Sounds like you're, you know, distant, removed from it, but it's still very frustrating every time you have to reach out to Herbert for something and you don't hear anything back. Yeah, that's, that's maddening. And it's like, especially if they're like a couple cubes over, you know, you could turn around and look and see what is Herbert doing. And Herbert is not solitaire, but it's not work either. You know, like, I don't know what that is, but it's not what I thought Herbert was doing. It's unfortunate. I'm sorry you had to go through that. I lament all people that have experience with Herberts, and I want all Herberts that hear my voice to go get a different job. One where you don't touch computers. Like, go, go plant trees or something, right? Be useful for the environment. Just don't, don't mess with computers anymore if you're a Herbert. If you think you're a Herbert, see a therapist. You have problems. All right, so enough on the Herbert. I don't want to be too insulting. No, no, by all I means, keep going. I feel very about this. I feel very strongly about this topic, and so I'm, I don't. I don't want to infect other people's opinions. Although that's exactly what we do yeah, here, that, right? Yeah, that is I mean, the kind of the, the purpose of the show. Yeah, well, it's right there in the name. You know exactly what it says on the ten. <laughs> well, this has been good to get back yeah. in the saddle here. I've enjoyed this, and I'm happy to have the space back and the ability to back to be able to do the recording. And I expect we'll be back on a regular schedule again very shortly. Hopefully. So, yes, hopefully so. Thank you, listeners, for bearing with us. If you have feedback on our feedback episode or anything we've said here, or just where the hell have you guys been? Make sure you preface that. Where the hell has Jeff been? Because JT has been like, like the, uh, the anchorman thing. He's just been waiting for me to be able to be able to record. So where has Jeff been? That's fine. Direct all your feedback to JT at mindripmedia.com or the Telegram channel. It's a good place. The Telegram or Matrix channels. They are linked. We have continued activity in there this entire time so it's not like we've been completely idle we've just been not publishing so jt i feel like i'm oh fireside you can also mm -hmm. submit messages through yep. fireside if you like and they will also go to jt who handles the feedback and then ambushes me with everything because it's hilarious yeah it's more fun that way it's more fun that way so well thank you for listening guys and we will talk to you again soon yeah. talk to you soon guys <laughs>